This is why we record on Discord now, which is also a piece of garbage, but it at least doesn't try and take over the microphone. This is gold. Yeah, this is this is podcast gold. People love to hear. Live from where Ishan and Shane keep stuff in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 157 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking with one of the biggest names in the RPG industry, Kenneth Height, the lead designer for Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition and the man responsible for the Emmy-nominated game, The Fall of Delta Green. But first, the rogue traders face a new threat in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the Nosferatu shares secrets in the shadows in the Character Creation Forge. So, as you are hearing this, that means we are now at Gen Con. Oh yeah, right now, immediately. Yeah, Mm -hmm. uh, it's probably too late for you to make the 9 a.m. Thursday panel as you're hearing this. But, you know, you can go for it. Yeah, if you can get to that room that I'm not quite sure where it is, uh, which is Check the website. Pr- probably not the room printed on your tickets, because we got a new room uh, with more seats. But yeah, uh, anyway, or you're hearing this, and it probably went fine. But you probably have enough time to make it to the Don't Split the Podcast Network panel at 5 p.m. on Saturday in Lucas Oil Stadium. Come hear uh, us, I guess. Uh, and also the Venture Maidens and Dames and Dragons and James and Tricasso and Rudy Basso from all a whole bunch of different shows. Yep, probably Mike Shea is going to be there if I if I had to guess. Uh, talking about what's going on with the network and you know the biggest news, which of course is that like we're the newest show in the network. Right, and, like, everyone's talking about we're it. Just like the hottest girl at the party. Obviously, okay. Right. Although, is this the point where it turns out that it was all a joke, and that's why we were invited, and then like everyone, like I don't know, throws ham at us or something? Yeah, this is a she's all that situation. Um, yeah, and they're Freddie Prince Jr. And we're. I wanted to be Freddie Prince Jr. No, I'm sorry, man. You do kind of resemble Freddie Prince Jr. Oh, uh, you should have seen me with the Caesar haircut in in the late '90s. <laughs> oh man, you should have seen me with a Caesar haircut in the late '90s. Oh, it was tragic. <laughs> so much gel. Oh, just yeah. <laughs> so much gel. <laughs> uh, thanks, Paul Mitchell. Uh, <laughs> yeah. For nothing. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, so uh, so if you're at Gen Con, come hang out with us. Even if you cannot make the panel itself at 5 p.m., we will be meeting at a secret undisclosed location afterward for, you know, a bunch of drinks, which is basically what you do at Gen Con. Uh, well, it's what we do at Gen Con anyway. Oh, right. Sorry. I just assume everyone is us. Some people play games, I guess. <laughs> Fools. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Uh, at us or something to find out where it is, and we'll let you know. Cool. Speaking of not knowing where we're going, Shane, where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition rules by Fantasy Flight Games. And uh, if you are new to the podcast, perhaps you've just started listening after we joined Don't Split the Podcast Network, uh, I guess I should give you an introduction. Um, This recap actually started all the way back at episode 75, which means you're 80 episodes behind. Uh, Not a big deal. (laughs) Not much happened. Don't worry about it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, But I I will try to catch you up. Uh, Just, you know, keep in mind. 
the rogue traders are uh, deserving every bad thing that happens to them. What? No, we just roll poorly and you keep throwing impossible situations in our way is what happens. Well, that's what you deserve. We never make bad decisions. Okay, so you guys are on the Dead World Malajact. Uh, the rogue traders and the two best companies of armsmen um, you have located the Verza House, which is an ancient obsidian fortress that once uh, was occupied by the fallen Dark Angel, Lord Cypher. And uh, you've been there for a couple nights. You've had some hauntings, if you recall. Uh, yeah, and a couple invasions, too. Yeah, you've been uh, pretty consistently harassed by uh, mutants who are attacking the fortress. Yeah, harassed, as in being shot at with laser guns. Mm-hmm, nearly killed. Mm-hmm. Yep, no big deal. Well, I mean, a lot of our men died, but, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, then they have mounted a, a large full frontal assault on the fortress. Uh, meanwhile, you have sent your three nerds to go and explore the depths of the fortress, uh, which you didn't even realize existed i didn't Um, know it was deep (laughs) right so uh that's the seneschal tricks the astropath flare and the quartermaster echo again the three nerds um are racing through the depths of the fortress looking for something that seems to be calling out to them it seems like there's something important here they don't know what they don't know what they're looking for but they're hoping they'll find it uh, and meanwhile, the arch militants, Draco and Trank. The brave, brave arch militants, Draco and my character, Trank. Uh, as well as the chief Medicaid, Doc. The giant heretic, Doc. Heretic. <laughs> different word. Uh, are, uh, are in the midst of repelling a massive assault. Uh, and surprisingly, or perhaps unsurprisingly, the attackers uh, managed to scale the walls and breach the Verza house. Right. It's a massive attack in that it goes on for like 17 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and the last one sounds the same uh, as the next one. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's got that slight techno flair and there's a <laughs> woman's voice. Anyway, you kind of rally the, the troops who are surviving and uh, and retake those upper casements corridor by corridor. Uh, repel the invaders and resecure the Verza house. And we're done. <laughs> Success. That is your first victory of the day. Probably your first victory in a few weeks, to be honest. <laughs> but don't worry, it's short lived. Yeah. Uh, you could scarcely catch your breath. <laughs> and then the spotters call out that there is a, a new threat. What is that, Ishan? A giant battering ram at the front gate, of course. Meanwhile, those nerds that have run into the depths of the house are uh, in a library, bewildered by a book that has caught uh, the astropath flare, caught his eye for an embossed icon on its spine um, of a white snake eating its own tail, uh, which recalls the vision that has haunted him since he entered the Verza house of a, of a large white worm or snake crawling through the rock sort of albino looking chitinous nasty thing chasing after him that is going to eat him Uh, and and then he sees this symbol okay but back on the casements where the action is doc and trank don't have time for these kinds of book fun Mm -hmm. okay instead we're trying trying to scramble the armsmen to get to the gatehouse and turn these massive rampart guns right these uh giant uh, laser cannons single shot laser cannons yep toward the battering ram Uh, we suffer extreme casualties doing that i don't get hit but a lot of the guys that i'm commanding get hit okay and due to our amazing aim 
the carriage of the ram is damaged, but not destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, it's not quite enough. Oh, it was enough, okay? <laughs> For those guys who are dead now, and I, I have their names, because I'm probably going to read them at a funeral. Yeah, so the carriage disabled. Uh, the attackers just kind of hoist the ram by manpower alone and drive it forward into the massive iron doors of the gatehouse that have stood through millennia. And then far removed from the struggle back in the library, Flair opens the fateful book and idly flips through its pages, kind of perusing them. And he hears a ringing that verberates through the corridors of the fortress and wonders, for whom the bell tolls? And we'll find out for whom next week. So now, uh, dear listeners, we will take you to the audio of our interview with Ken Height. Just before we get started, I uh, want to say thank you to Ken for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciated it. We had a, a great time um, discussing a little bit of Knight's Black Agents, a little bit of Dracula Dossier, a little bit of Fall of Delta Green, and of course some Vampire. And to thank him for spanking us in 2016 at the Ennies, where we were nominated and did not win, partially because Ken and Robin talk about stuff, his podcast won. Yeah. But I think we're in good company. Yeah, that, that that was his uh his very polite comment about that. Well, a lot of good podcasts lost. Well, it was a, it was a lot better than who are you? Yeah, exactly. But it, also, who are you? <laughs> but but seriously, why am I here? <laughs> so uh, we will be back after the interview. We're here with Ken Height, one of the main guys behind the imminent. Arrival of Vampire the Masquerade 5th Edition. Um, Ken, I gotta say, you know, looking through your body of work, uh, there's just sort of one question that sort of glares at me, and it is, what is it with you and vampires? Um, well, this is a question that I think a lot of people have. You know, obviously they're a huge part of the Western tradition, both in terms of literature, in terms of the occult, in terms of storytelling, in terms of gaming, a giant uh, core element of it. So I tossed them in here and there. And then it occurred to me to write a whole game about hunting and killing vampires, because at that time there wasn't one. Um, Hunter the Vigil, I think, came out while I was writing Nice Black Agents. Uh, Hunter the Reckoning, of course, had been gone uh, forever ago. The Buffy RPG had sort of um, uh, faded into the into the West, uh, you know, gone through its unsatisfying seventh season and been gone, um, whatever the metaphor is. And so I did Knights Black Agents, and that apparently, you know, got some people's interest, uh, got some people gaming. It was great fun. Then I did Dracula Dossier for Knights Black Agents, and shortly thereafter, White Wolf, the new White Wolf uh, in Sweden, called me to say, we would like you to do the lead design on Vampire... Uh, the masquerade and i said you guys realize i'm team van helsing <laughs> and they said yeah um we read knight's black agents we loved knight's black agents we figure you've already written fifth edition vampire just write it again from the vampire point of view and as pitches go that was pretty good so you know i got to uh come on board uh with mary lee as the lead graphic uh designer and art director and then we assembled a, a writing team. Uh, Kareem Wamar began as our editor and rapidly proved to have amazing game design chops of his own. Uh, Jason Carl, who's, uh, who runs By Night Studios, sort of wrangled the whole project. 
And sure enough, end of the end of the day, Vampire Masquerade Fifth Edition came out the other end, and uh, hopefully, people will enjoy it and uh, like it and get to sort of play some vampires just like they were back in the day, only with ideally slightly more mathematically sound rules. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so what are some of the challenges that you had in terms of bringing vampire into modernity? Because as you mentioned, the rules not so great at least by the end of the run. Um, then you also had to advance the timeline, right, into sort of the modern age. So what, right. what, what did you run into there? I mean, the good half of this was that Martin Erickson, the creative director at White Wolf, first of all, said, be as radical as you want to the rules. Do anything you want to the rules. If you come back to me and Vampire is, you know, played with two index cards and a pile of beads and it's a good game, I'll be happy. We didn't do that. We stuck with 10-sided dice because everyone loves 10-sided dice. I'm basically, you know, conservative in my game design philosophy. Uh, we're designing a game that has to appeal not only to new players, but also to players who were playing in the 90s and maybe got dropped away from it and are curious and want to come back. We want a, a D&D fifth experience, basically, uh, which brought in people from every old edition plus all the new kids that are playing now. We wanted to do that with Vampire. So my goal was to take all of the sort of mechanical feel of the old game, but like I say, make the math work. And that was sort of the challenge right there. Uh, you know, that mean getting rid of botch dice because botch dice uh, mm. basically mean that the better you are at something, the better your chance to fail catastrophically, which while it may or may not serve drama and in my personal gaming experience, it doesn't, uh, it certainly doesn't serve math. Right. <laughs> and so took those out, replaced them with criticals. And so suddenly your desperately powerful character is actually succeeding at things. And that sort of makes things interesting because of course, Vampire is not a game about being frustrated by the die rolls, by your powers. Vampire is a game about being frustrated by the universe. And of course, anything that your characters can do, guess what? NPCs can do too. And that is the real um, uh, bite you situation now that we have. So a vampire going up against another vampire, he may be thinking, great, I've got a 15% chance of a critical or whatever the number is. But he's like, oh, but that guy's got a 15% chance of a critical. Suddenly it's a gunfight, right? It's, you know, high noon. Mm -hmm. You're not just sort of waiting for the other guy to botch himself into oblivion. And so combat got a lot faster. And again, I think that fits the fiction a little more. So those are the sort of the challenges we put together. And then in terms of advancing the timeline, Martin had a vision of where he wanted to go. He wanted to take the world back to that sort of medieval, claustrophobic feel of 1991 vampire. And the best way to do that was to give vampires a really strong threat uh, in addition to werewolves. And that was basically the Knights Black Agents uh, campaign setting that there are intelligence agencies who know vampires exist and are hunting them. And in this case, it's super easy. I mean, if you want to look like at what an out-of-control intelligence agency uh, looks like, uh, there are many real-world examples now that there weren't in 1991, maybe. And so you sort of marry the NSA uh, Five Eyes global surveillance state with the CIA's black prison rendition program with all of the other aspects of the global uh, hootenanny that we're in right now. And you say some portion of that entirely unknown black budget has been diverted to hunting and killing vampires it doesn't take that big a percentage of a multi-billion dollar black budget to make vampires lives really sad especially since they still can't go around in the daytime and 
it turns out uh, Steel Team 6 absolutely can go around in the daytime. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting that at the character level, uh, the changes to the mechanics mean that it's less like um, yakety sacks. You know, you don't have people like falling over, like tripping over right. themselves. And the negative dice, right? Those the are hunger the hunger dice. dice. Yeah. Uh, they don't scale with your power level. No, they scale with how long it's been since you ate. <laughs> they scale with your right. hunger. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you can, you can still at the character level be very powerful and be very successful but at the same time in the fiction of the game that you've advanced to you know present day uh, it's tough to be a vampire mm-hmm. it's scary it's, it's bad news um, the, the only thing you have going for you and this is not necessarily an unmixed blessing is that because they didn't want to go back and retcon the whole uh, Gehenna situation and say mm. hey White Wolf fans the last three years of your game don't count because that's a jerk move so they said well a lot of that happened, and guess what? Uh, just like the people, uh, there's a, a group called the pre-millennialists and the post-millennialists in uh, sort of fundamentalist uh, Christianity who believe that either the revelation is going to happen all at once, bang, or it's going to happen over the course of a thousand years. And it turns out, oh, in the vampire case, the uh, post-millennialists were right. <laughs> There's going to be a thousand years of unpleasantness of Gehenna, basically. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a one-time situation the way that the vampires thought it was. So Gehenna is an ongoing, roiling nightmare that's happening. Mm. And so more and more of the elders are getting drained away to face Gehenna. So you, the player character vampires, on the one hand, you've got all these new problems. You've got all this horrible uh, uh, situation with the NSA or whoever hunting you. But you've also got, or the Second Inquisition, as we call it, because the good old Vatican's back in it. But you've also got a situation where, hey, maybe the elder of your city, the prince of your city has left, and the guy he left behind is not as uh, terrifying as the guy who was keeping you down before. So maybe you have a chance to... Uh, mount a coup d'etat or at least gain power or rise up in the vampire hierarchy and that creates some really great play opportunities within the setting but of course anything that's true for you and this is the great mantra of vampire is true for a lot of other horrible non-player character vampires and they have all the same resources and all the same abilities that you do and that's the real fun of being a vampire I think is to have immense power that it, that just in Newtonian fashion meets immense reaction whenever you try to use it. I mean, hey, look, okay, the, you say the Vatican's back in. Like, the Vatican never left, right. right? It turns out they were actually right, which is how you know this game is fiction. <laughs> right. Well, they're right about vampires. I mean, I, the game takes no stance on um, uh, the various uh, theological issues of the day. Um, but it does say, yep, the... The Vatican knew vampires when they saw them. And even then, for a while there, the um, Society of St. Leopold, it uh, it couldn't convince the Pope. But guess what we had in the interim? We had a scary German Pope. So Pope Benedict, and who then resigns mysteriously. And if that doesn't say to you, oh, he <laughs> took his time to reestablish the Second Inquisition, and now he has to do that full time instead of poping. Um, so, yeah, let the cool Pope go around and wear the white robe. Benedict is back there in the shadows killing vampires. I think that that makes everyone happy, except maybe Benedict. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think he's a fan. Yeah, yeah. Right. No, I'm, I hope he is. Sure. Yeah, obviously. It, it's nice to have billionaire fans. That's my that's my motto. Hey, billionaires. Call me. Yeah. Well, if we find some billionaire <laughs> listeners, we'll pass them your way. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. That's that's the least we can do, right. I think. Uh, so let me ask you, you're, uh, you know, uh, brought on by White Wolf to update this this pretty iconic game uh-huh. that a lot of people Absolutely. are desperately in, desperately in love with. But a lot of people are also like, 
uh, I love, you know, the game, but I just hate playing the game. Um, how much experience did you have playing Vampire or White Wolf products? I mean, I did a little bit of it back in the 90s, like I think everybody did. But again, mm. the mechanics of it kept getting up my nose. It was really hard to sort of succeed at anything. And mm-hmm. if I want to play that, I play. that's what Call of Cthulhu literally exists right. for, <laughs> is, is to ruin your life constantly. And at least you've bought into the fiction there. You're like, oh, I'm an accountant fighting near Lothotep. Of course I'm going to be terrible at this. <laughs> but in um, uh, in Vampire, you're supposed to be these these cool, awesome monsters, or in Mage, you're supposed to have power over all of reality, and if every so often you're getting your elbows stuck in the drawer, it's like, why am I even doing this? So, the, the, sort of the system, I don't want to say it drove me out, but there was... There was always Call of Cthulhu back there looking looking at me with smoky mm. eyes. So I, I did a little bit of it. Uh, I had some friends, who, of course, who were giant uh, uh, vampire heads. Um, and I think I did a little bit of LARPing even, although don't quote me. Um, <laughs> it was it was college. We all did a lot of things that we don't remember. Um, so, yeah, uh, I did a little bit. I did not do a ton of it. And it maybe that experience of remembering how much I loved the setting because that was about the same time that I was sort of getting into writing the games professionally and so I was mm-hmm. reading them as sort of wow this is really selling what's this and it's like well of course this is selling look at the rich beautiful ornate sexy bloody soap opera that they're building here how can this not sell and mm-hmm. um, uh, so th- I, I really like the world and the design goals uh, that Mark and the others had for it and of course Justin Achille was like the sort of my model of what a line developer should be uh, growing up and I got to be you know edited by him which was great fun so you know I had a great deal of professional admiration for a big part of Vampire it's just that the actual at the table experience never clicked for me and I think that may be what I was trying to uh, come back at uh, with the redesign so so you had a little bit of experience playing it um, I guess how, yeah. how much did you know about the lore then was that kind of at the same level when I, when I was playing it I knew some of the lore um, and then as I got uh, I, I began to know a lot more of the lore by the time I started being a writer and, and writing for White Wolf. You know, I wrote Canite uh, Heresy for Vampire Dark Ages. I wrote part of the Camarilla book for Vampire Revised. I mean, I did a ton of, of White Wolf stuff. I wrote, you know, about a, th- a quarter of the Mage Sorcerer's Crusade book. So once I started being a freelancer for White Wolf, I, I knew the lore fairly well. I wouldn't say super well. We had guys on our team like Matthew Dawkins who just have it completely memorized yeah. like it's for it's for them it's like you know freaking star trek continuity used to be to me when i was running star trek games <laughs> well, <laughs> um just you know you ask him anything you say hey is there a is there a vampire in st louis and he's like bah, 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 bah. all right thanks man <laughs> uh, by the way they're all dead the the second inquisition killed them so update your calendars <laughs> that was another great thing was um when uh we were doing the planning and i'm saying well if the second inquisition is supposed to be a threat uh can they kill famous vampires from the past? He's like, here is the small index card list of vampires you have to keep alive. Anyone else is fair game. And I was like, all nice. right. So um, I, uh, I I tried to kill as many of them as I possibly could. <laughs> I'm just one man. I actually really liked how uh, there's like this massive global purge of vampires, yeah. but it's sort of the opposite of the um, fourth edition Forgotten Realms scenario where like there's the spell plague and hey, all your other stories that you were running before like just can't exist anymore. Right. I, I liked how if you were running a vampire game before, your character, even if their clan sort of doesn't exist anymore, um, you could still be like, well, it doesn't mean my character's dead. It could just mean that they are 
clanless now mm-hmm. or they're in hiding or like there's so many different options to continue the old stories. Right. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to we don't want to nerf anyone else's game because that's mm-hmm. like he's it, it feels like kind of a jerk move to do it. And yeah, when I say uh, and actually when White Wolf said back in 2003, oh, Ravnos is destroyed. If you played a Ravnos and you were having a great time playing a Ravnos, well, your clan is torn to pieces by some magical monster in Bangladesh, but you personally weren't there. So, yeah, maybe you're clanless or maybe you're still trickling along on whatever Ravnos uh, contacts or energy you can you can dig up somewhere. And that becomes mm. the focus of your game. How much of um, those big changes were handed to you and how much were they like uh, destroy what you want and you were just like going to town? Like, how did you pick which clans didn't exist anymore? Well, the, first of all, White Wolf picked um, uh, the, the fact, the old White Wolf picked the fact that Ravnos got blown away. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we sort of said, well, we want to sort of keep the seven iconic clans that were in the beginning mm-hmm. alive. Although I lobbied and succeeded to have the Tremere Prime Chantry blown up <laughs> so that the Tremere just stopped being such jerks every time. Um, oh. And we and we uh, tweaked some of the you know effects because um, again we we can't ignore past White Wolf continuity. This is not the re- reboot of White Wolf. This is just a new version of the game sliding into mm-hmm. the old world. So we can't ignore, for example, things like the Reckoning uh, that happened. A bunch of people suddenly got be- imbued in their blood. But my argument was, well, that has a global magical effect. You can't just say that it didn't happen. So if we want to change stuff about how blood feels, maybe that's why it came from that. That Maybe that's what happened. Or maybe it was just a secret that the Tremere were keeping, and then when their Chantry blew up, oh, well, there you go. Now it's out in the open. Um, so it was elements like that, and there was a lot of give and take. It was a very uh, mutual process. Martin had a sort of a vision, and then he would say, how do we get to this vision? And I would suggest a bunch of things, and some people would say, well, that's going to cause problems down the line. And sometimes it was like yes, and sometimes it was no. And there was things that I wanted to do that we just couldn't fit into the core book that hopefully Onyx Path or, or White Wolf or whoever will be rolling out in the future, and we'll get to see some of the other things that I suggested. Any of those that you can share with us? Um, there are hints in the core book that if you look at them, you will begin to suspect what I think the La Sombra are up to. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. Oh, well, we're going to dig through that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, clearly the... Um... Like the Anarchs are getting a book and the Camarilla is getting a book, right? Like that. So that's already basically exactly. been announced as part of the line. Nothing else that we can know, though, huh? No, um, because uh, trust me, I don't know it. Uh, they're either keeping it really close to their vest or they're thinking we're not going to be a publishing company first and foremost. We're going to be an IP managing company and we'll let the great people at Onyx Path do the publishing or we'll let uh, Modifius do the publishing or someone else do the publishing and then we'll vet it and use that uh, means of moving the story forward in the same way that, you know, um, uh, Kathleen Kennedy doesn't make Star Wars movies. She goes and hires a guy to make a Star Wars movie. So same basic principle. So for for old players, I know there were... There were a lot of things that you didn't change, right? It still uses ten sided dice. It's still it's still a five dot system. Right, yeah. People who probably like were more into the story than the system itself, it may not actually feel like it's all that different. But for like old school players, what do you think that they will uh, get about your version of their their favorite game? Obviously, other than criticals. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I hope that actually that's going to be a big part of what they get, is that their character feels more powerful, more mm-hmm. like a vampire. Um, so that was the goal. But more like a vampire, 
in the world of vampires, a big double-edged sword, and that's where those hunger dice come in. Mm. And the ability to role-play... I mean, one of the greatest game mechanics in the history of mankind is the sanity death spiral from Call of Cthulhu, uh, invented by Sandy Peterson way back in 1981. And when and the great part is, you look at that character and you say, oh, I have a 12 sanity. That means I'm probably a sketchy, edgy, sweaty guy who's on the verge of collapse. Where you look at the character and you say, I've got an 85 sanity. I'm probably pretty good with this stuff. In Old Vampire, you really couldn't have that with how hungry are you, how feral are you, how bestial are you getting. Mm. And those hunger dice give you not just a visual cue, but also, of course, a mechanical cue to say, this is how close the beast is to taking control. This is how close you are to frenzy. This is how close you are to losing it. And maybe you should stop and um, uh, get your blood not your blood sugar, your blood blood back up. <laughs> um, but that gives you that role-playing key that I think is going to be super great for people who, like you say, wanted to get into the experience of playing one of these um, uh, one of these undead, one of the kindred. Yeah, I like, um, like going back to the critical thing, like the way the hunger dice work in the math, right? Like the more powerful you get, uh, you roll more dice. But the hunger dice are replacing a certain number of them based on how hungry you are. Exactly. So like... As you right. get more powerful, the risk of the beast becomes that much greater because you're that much more likely to crit. Um, and then also, like, if you're not managing your hunger, then that's going to be a bloody critical. And that's probably not good for you or not totally good for you. Yeah, because if you crit with hunger dice, we, it's what we call a messy critical. Right. Uh, you succeed, but in a bestial way, not a human way. So it's like, oh, did I get the door open? Well, you messy critical, so yes, but it's a mass of bloody splinters, and now if the cops are coming, they'll know something is up. Um, you did did I you know find that guy? Yes, and with a messy critical, you not only found him, you like you know stared at him with your creepy vampire eyes and started to stalk him, and so now he knows that you're after him, that kind of thing. So there's lots of ways that you can think. Oh, how did my hunger create this success instead of my human? My, my dwindling human brain uh, create this success. So that's hopefully in play. People will be feeling that tension. And like you say, be saying, well, I feel really good about this role, but I didn't eat that last time we were in the nightclub. So I feel really iffy about this role. And that sort of tension, I think makes, makes vampire more than just sort of, you know, um, uh, you know, superheroes with fangs, as people say, right. uh, mm. I, th I think that if you can get them back to being, uh, really hungry for human blood. That's sort of the core of vampiring to me, anyway. I also like that the rules sort of introduce a tactical element. Uh, you know, like you said, if you crit with hunger dice, you know, you succeeded a little too well. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you, you know, you have the opportunity to maybe spend a little willpower to try to reroll that and actually, like, exactly. not, not do quite as well, you know? Yeah. Yeah, and the playtesting, re-rolling messy criticals became a big thing. People were like, oh, man, I I want to tear that car open, but I also don't want to tear that car open, if you know what I mean. Right. I don't, I don't want people to know, but also, I love the, you know, oh, but there's also stain on my soul if I do that. And mm -hmm. Yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. It actually reminded me a lot of Knights Black Agents, where, you know, you can spend, uh, you know... Um, you know, from your two different tracks in order to, like, you know, take additional actions. And, you know, there's a, there's a tactical element to extending yourself, figuring out exactly, like, how much you're not just able to accomplish, but, like, willing to accomplish based on the fiction and based on, like, the riskiness that you want this particular mission or scene to entail. Right. Yeah. And, and uh, again, that's that element was sort of present. I don't think that I straight up invented 
well, maybe one or two things, but most of the things that I put in the game were present in Ovo somewhere in Vampire. So spending a, a, will, a willpower to reroll happens in Old Vampire. I forget when it was introduced, but I just, we just sort of pull it out and said, hey, remember, you can do this. And now we give you a reason to do it because it's more important. And uh, uh, things like um, Prestation, uh, where you exchange uh, boons back and forth, that existed. We just gave it a mechanical substrate. Hmm. Although I don't know if that made it into the core book. I, I know I wrote it, but I, I forget if it's in the core book or not. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing about having Free League do your graphic design is that when they come back with a graphic design, uh, you get to choose, do I want this graphic design or do I want all of the lovely words? And I think a lot of times some of the lovely words got you know taken out and are going to be put in other books. Hey, it's nice to have other books. Yes. No, that's one of the reasons we had the other two books in, in reserve is just in case we needed to do this. So you said that when White Wolf came to you in the first place, they were like, hey, make Knights Black Agents from the other side. How mm-hmm. how literally did you take that? Like, how much Knights Black Agents is in current World of Darkness now? I mean, because the, um, uh, the, the basic rules of roll to hit a target number are the same rules as Gumshoe, there was a lot of times when Vampire didn't have a system, I could go back and look and say, how did I do this in Knights Black Agents? And mm-hmm. that doesn't, you, you can't port it over directly, but it inspires sort of the the architecture of how the game works. Uh, for example, um, one roll combat, if you want to just solve things with one roll, that began as a mank uncombat in the Yellow King role-playing game, which has that same sort of engine it's again uh, a gumshoe uh derivative so i reached into the vast world of gumshoe and found something and, and pulled it out and then it got you know refined and refined and refined in playtesting until now it's probably not even recognizable to robin although um i'm sure that he will nod <laughs> gently uh but um that was where the sort of the, that first armature underneath the, the mechanics came from and that happened over and over there there was a thing that i wasn't able to put in because i couldn't you know, quite turn that corner, but uh, something about how thick is the veil for the masquerade in your area, and maybe that can have an effect on your dice. But I couldn't quite figure out how to make that mathematically work, uh, so I couldn't adapt heat from Knights Black Agents. But there's a challenge for all you uh, tabletop <laughs> game hackers. We're gonna need uh, do that. We're gonna need some blue dice now for the masquerade. Some That's red right. dice for the hunger. Exactly. I like that. Blues and reds. That's how close the cops yeah. are. <laughs> I thought it was interesting that the title of the game goes back to the Masquerade because, you know, there was that lore update between the Masquerade and the Requiem where it sort of moves away from this apocalyptic, like, Christian fiction. I like that it came back. Um, was that, like, from the very beginning, the the plan? Well, Requiem, I mean, when you look at Requiem, which is a great game and we took a lot of stuff out of it, uh, Touchstone's popping immediately to mind. But mm. again, looking at the way Requiem solved some of these same problems was really instructive. Um, Requiem's a different game. It takes place in a different timeline. There's different clans. There's different everything else in, in, in Requiem. So anything that's true in Requiem is not necessarily true in the World of Darkness. So what it was was we took mechanically great stuff out of Requiem and some of the feel out of Requiem, but it's a game about the World of Darkness that was established in 1991 by Mark and uh, built out over uh, 11 years or whatever it was, and then, you know, went into the dark, into the darkness, into the shadows, and has now come back out to us. It was not really an attempt to 
um, create de novo a new world of darkness mm. it, so much. So the lore shift into Requiem, it certainly informs the way that we present the game. I mean, presenting a game about Christian apocalypse to a audience that is not necessarily going to be Christian or even now familiar with the concepts of the Christian apocalypse is different. So we have to recast the apocalypse and make it feel, I don't want to say more non-sectarian, but a sort of a bigger thing than just the book of revelation. If that's a, if that makes any sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're going to take the rapture and the tribulation just kind of turn to 11, you know? Yeah, exactly. You know, make it big. Come on, St. John of Patmos. What's up with you? Think, think big, man. And obviously the vampires themselves, one of those sort of conceits going back again to the nineties is that the vampires themselves are sort of prisoners of their own human culture. So the fact that, the guys who were running the Camarilla up till very, very recently were a bunch of medieval screwheads means they looked at things through this very straight up medieval Christendom viewpoint. So they were incapable of understanding a bigger revelation or a revelation that doesn't necessarily have some Christian uh, mirroring for all their talk about the book of Nod and the true Cain and the rest of it. They were all terrified that they were damned. I mean, that's why they call themselves the damned, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, knowing that and unknowing that, the you know you can't necessarily go down and say nope. Um, uh, turns out that seventeenth uh, century Arminianism is right, and everything else has to you know yeah. back up that. You can't pick and choose amongst doctrines or even amongst religions, um, but you can sort of still keep that bigger sense of a of a sacred, mystical, terrifying universe that you know is core to supernaturalism anyway, and certainly core to vampire supernaturalism. I like that approach because whatever religion you have at your table that's like familiar to you has a place for kind of explaining whatever that myth becomes right so you can mm-hmm. relate it to your touchstones and it doesn't like you said have to be the christian revelation right or the christian or the christian you know seven deadly sins seven right. mm-hmm. you know uh, saintly virtues um and that's part of the notion of re re sort of recasting those touchstones to let you build your own version of what is the thing you believe great you can build old school vampire virtue and vice out of those you can build any of the paths out of it you can do anything that you want with that and rather than us trying to say the world is christian but if you are a um a power gamer you can do something else which seems to break all manner of just rules concepts much less story concepts to me just put it together and say look Tell us what you thought before you were a vampire and now watch it get beaten on by the universe because that's how being a vampire is. I'm James Intercasso and I love tabletop role-playing games. I've got a new podcast called Tabletop Babble that talks RPG advice, interviews, reviews, and news with some of the top names in the industry. The conversation is casual, just like it would be if we were hanging out at a convention or local friendly game store. Get a new episode each week at don'tsplitthepodcastnetwork.com or wherever podcasts are available for free. So that more all sort of encompassing approach, um, how does that help you build out uh, an actual world of darkness rather than like a Europe slash North America of darkness? Like I remember the old books, there'd be like a separate book for vampires in Japan who like did different stuff. And then there were like vampires in Africa who were also kind of different. But uh, this book says like, hey, there's Zimbabwe and some of the first vampires showed up in China. Like they're everywhere. Yeah. I mean, that's that was that was definitely one of my goals is like to try and move as far away from that sort of 
um, special pleading by continent mm. that they had. I mean, I, I guess I understand why they did it, but it wouldn't have been my choice back in 2000 or whenever, 98. And I don't know that we've actually, if, if Mar- I mean, Martin may have a notion in his, in his uh, giant Swedish head, which is great, but I think we at least, I at least wanted to make sure that if your game group was in Malaysia or Tokyo or uh, uh, Lagos or wherever, that you didn't have to feel like you were playing a bunch of alien colonialists. Mm. You could feel like you're playing your dudes from your back streets, which is the whole, you know, core and concept of vampire is maybe I didn't get bit. But what if that sketchy guy who used to smoke weed with me on the loading dock got bit? You know, that's sort of one of those core elements of vampire. And if we say that, you know, vampires are just Europeans or just Sumerians or whatever, we're losing a huge chunk of that. Certainly in the modern era, you can't say that. So, yeah, my notion is, uh, you know, if I if I got my druthers, those books would be retconned out of existence. I don't know that that's what's going to happen. That This is just Ken talking out his butt, not uh, White Wolf talking. <laughs> that's why we brought you on the show for butt talking. Right, for butt talking. Well, thank God. Um, uh, so I don't know to what extent the, the, the Quajin are going to remain a thing or the Libon, um, but in my goal at the very least, if you want to play a Kenyan vampire, you can by God play a Kenyan vampire with all the same cool powers and all the same stuff going wrong with you as happens in a vampire in Chicago or London or wherever else. The notion that vampires can be anyone is, again, it, it goes back to the 90s. If you look at Tim Bradstreet's art, he was not saying, no, vampires are all uh, weedy Englishmen. They're, they're, they're not all frickin', you know, uh, Lestat and his crowd. So, yeah, I think that sort of making that official and saying, yeah, anyone's a vampire, that's how it works. You, <laughs> the vampires bite you based on how hungry they are, not on some sort of weird, um, uh, you know, ethnic fervor. Everyone's delicious. Everyone is in their own way, and that's one of the and that's one of the elements that we sort of put in is to provide mm-hmm. that deliciousness with more of a mechanical effect to make hunting more than just stopping at the freaking gas station. I mean, now it's like, oh, the blood is going to have some effect on me because I'm drinking it. I, you are what you eat, as uh, as Martin put it, mm-hmm. and so. There may be a uh, an effect on my disciplines or an effect on some other thing based on the emotional state of my uh, victim. And that, I think, makes hunting more interesting, at least potentially, because it turns the thing from just a little, you know, dot that you, you know, suck up on the in the dungeon level to, oh, maybe I got a plus one human. And if I get a plus two human, do I kill him or do I keep him? And if I keep him, how do I do that without the boss vampire finding out. And now suddenly, uh, anytime the treasure makes the story more complicated, that's good writing. And that's, I think, good gaming. And it's also <laughs> ideal for vampire because nothing ever comes without a, a price tag in the world of vampire. And that's sort of tr- what we kind of tried to emphasize. You can't eat people for free, but on the other hand, you've got a little more incentive to pay attention. All right, my new goal is to be a plus two human. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I really feel like uh, that, that should have been like the editor's notes or something at the front that just said like, <laughs> anytime the uh, the treasure makes it more complicated, and in this case the treasures are humans. Yeah. The treasures is human blood. Um, yeah. But hopefully that comes through. Um, again, I don't know. Uh, maybe we'll just mandate that everyone listen to this podcast when they buy the book. Well, that'd be helpful for us yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm on board for that <laughs> yeah I guess we can do that I'll, I'll run that up to Stockholm yeah. and see what they say <laughs> narrator they did not agree <laughs>
So one thing you've talked about uh, in like your writing process, and especially I think for the fall of Delta Green, you talked about like creating a soundtrack that just kind of played as the as your touchstone for the period. Um, did you have mm-hmm. a soundtrack for Vampire? And was it all the Ramones? I mean, the, the Ramones are, are in my soundtrack uh, as, as much as I can anyway. But, yeah, I started with the same sort of, you know, gothy music that was there in the 90s. I listened to some um, some sort of uh, weird uh, new metal, uh, a bunch of punk, just because that's my good writing music anyway, because uh, the rhythm is up, and uh, when you're angry, it's you're, it's easier to edit. Um <laughs> <laughs> it's easier to kill your darlings when you're very angry. Yeah, right, exactly. When you're very angry at them for being jerks. Uh, and then also, um, you know, some of the, I mean, uh, Martin is a giant EDM fan. I didn't go that far down that road, but a lot more club music than is usually in my mix. Just to sort of get that, you're in the nightclub and you can eat anyone mode going. And so, you know, um, Avicii, for example, uh, showed up in the in the headphones. This is like totally oh, mainstream. All the all the twenty year olds are saying whatever, <laughs> but um, uh, but to a fifty two year old, that's a big thing. Um, that's funny because I I would have thought that that was part of the Knights Black Asian soundtrack too. Because there's a lot of elements of Knights Black Asians that are like, you know, hanging out in like a club in Romania somewhere. Yeah, Knights Black Asians was a ton of spy uh, movie soundtracks. Okay. Welcome to the Total Party Music Podcast. Um, <laughs> but I don't know if you guys have heard the soundtrack to the movie Man from Uncle, the the new one, the, new uh, one. the guy Richie did. Um, Daniel Pemberton did the soundtrack, and it rules. It is so great, and it is great for uh, for spy writing. It, it's all very up tempo and, and weird and fun. And man, if you haven't listened to it, you know, get yourself a copy of that on iTunes and listen to it. It's amazing. We'll drop a link in the show notes. Absolutely. <laughs> That's what I'm here to do. Thanks, Daniel Pemberton. You owe me one. <laughs> so I love talking about Vampire, but uh, I feel like we should plug a couple of your other projects. So for those who don't know anything about Fall of Delta Green, can you like give us just a bit of info? Uh, Fall of Delta Green takes the Delta Green setting, which was developed by John Tynes, uh, Scott Glancy, and Dennis Detwiller back in the 90s. I, I'm always in the 90s. I can't get out. Um and was the notion that in Lovecraft's story, Shadow over Innsmouth, the federal government goes in and blows up Innsmouth and rounds up all the deep ones and puts them in concentration camps because Lovecraft was very progressive. Um, but the notion is if the federal government has discovered deep ones, they don't forget it. So this anti-deep one program becomes an anti-Cthulhu mythos program. And in the 1990s, it is a illegitimate conspiracy within the government that is continuing the good work that was done in the 60s when it was still legal, but it was shut down because everyone made horrible mistakes in Vietnam, Delta Green included. So uh, when they uh, decided to relaunch Delta Green as its own role-playing game, in addition to asking me to do some writing on that, they also said it would be nice if there was a Trail of Cthulhu version of Delta Green so that we can sort of uh, calve that property off into people who play a different rule set. And we went back and forth as to what I should do, and we decided, how about you write the Delta Green when it was a legitimate government operation in the 1960s, before it gets taken down by its own hubris in Indochina. And I thought that was a great idea. In fact, I may even suggested it. That's how good an idea it was. <laughs> and so Fall of Delta Green is a gumshoe game. It's a standalone gumshoe game. You don't need any other uh, gumshoe 
to play with, though it is interoperable with Trail of Cthulhu and Knights Black Agents, because it is obviously a gumshoe game. Set in the 1960s, you are employees of the federal government who, in addition to whatever your your surface job is, are also covertly part of the Delta Green Black Program that sends you all over the world or all over America to stop the unnatural and uh, hunt monsters and kill wizards and burn all the books. And the trouble with that is, of course, not everyone in the program wants to burn all the books. And there's a whole other secret government program, Majestic, that says, uh, super technology, sign us up, and wants to turn the mythos into weapons and into scientific research. And you have to keep those guys away from it. So you have to sort of work against some of the other people who have the same clearance you have while also getting the job done. And that sort of tension is core to original Delta Green in the 90s and uh, exists in the 60s as well. So that's what that was. And it it, uh, turns out that it was great fun to do. That was, like you say, that was the all 60s iTunes uh, uh, playlist. Bob Dylan and the Beach Boys and the whole nine yards and thank God Velvet Underground wrote four albums in 1967-68. So I was able to... um, uh, have a little bit of things that sounded like music at the end of it. But but the whole game is, you know, sort of that arc from uh, we can do anything, uh, Kennedy optimism, the new frontier, we're going to put a man on the moon, to, oh my God, what have we done, Richard Nixon era. And that arc is what Delta Green followed. Maybe it's what your agents follow. And, you know, great fun and horrible monstrosity and death all the way along. And it, it was an opportunity to take the gumshoe engine and say, how can I make it more dangerous how can I make it more terrible? Uh, because that's what the Delta Green role-playing game is. Is It's very dangerous and very terrible and has many, many ways to uh, uh, screw up uh, players. And you have to live up to that if you're porting a game over. Man, I, I thought Knights Black Agents felt pretty dangerous, so I am curious oh, how... Oh, Knights Black Agents is a walk on the beach compared to this. <laughs> In Knights Black Agents, you're Jason Bourne. Yeah, but you're fighting vampires. <laughs> yeah. in, in this game, you're not Jason Bourne, and you're fighting worse than vampires. <laughs> you're, you're a GS-10. You've got a gun and a badge, and maybe you have conversational Spanish, but you, you, you can't parkour off buildings and things necessarily, unless you put a lot of your points into that stuff. Can I keep my pension? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, How's this going to affect my my, my job performance? Because that's something that actually happens in in Delta Green, is if you've gone off and shot off a lot of ammunition and burned down a town, and it wasn't in Vietnam, you've got to fill out some damn reports. (laughs) And if you work for, you know, even if you work for the CIA, they ask ugly questions. If you work for the FBI, they ask even worse questions. You work for Fish and Wildlife, like, what the hell? <laughs> You're not supposed to shoot people and burn down a town. This is and invasive say, species. Oh, that was the that was the dangerous radicals who were stockpiling weapons that did that. We just stopped them. So you have to make sure there's corpses of dangerous radicals for people to find. And this is how programs get screwed up. <laughs> I think there are a lot of writers who are having problems like this these days. But when you're writing, you know, apocalyptic or like horror settings in games, uh, how do you compete with what's happening in the real world these days? I mean, here's the thing, right? The real world is always horrible. You just don't always notice it because it's not always horrible right under your nose. And that may be a function of, yeah, everything is worse, but it may also be a function of we know more because we have the Internet. And now we can just click and see, oh, my God, look at that horrible situation in Nigeria slash uh, Mexico slash wherever. But 
trust me, 1968, super horrible. Um, not a good look. Uh, you know, there are hundreds of cities in America burning to the ground, thousands of people dead in urban riots. Uh, Richard Nixon for crying out loud, yeah, and he was good at it, which was even worse, right? I mean, if you if you if you're not a fan of um, uh, of, of paranoid, crazy people in charge of the government, Lyndon Johnson and Richard Nixon are not going to be your favorite presidents. So the the notion that you know things are bad now, certainly things are not good now, but things were terrible in 1968, which becomes sort of the core. Uh, touchstone, like you say, for historical writing about that. I mean, Nice Black Agents is set in our world, so it's just as, it's set right now, so it's just as terrible as right now always is. Um, the the poor guys in the Delta Green role-playing game side that are sort of advancing the um, uh, the program, uh, we, they've been working on that Delta Green reboot for years and years and years, mm. and back, they started back when it was W, and they were going to be like, this is so great, we're going to have the program and it's going to be opposed to W use a war cabinet and then they had eight years of Obama and I just see the fun draining out of it for them where they're like oh man we have to say Obama's terrible and then Trump comes along he's like the best birthday present that Shane could have gotten for his game at least is that finally the program has a reason not to tell the president anything because look at him so yeah for the Delta Green side of things this is a gift um for me, 1968 was a gift. Neither are a gift that maybe you want, but they're certainly, they make it easier, not harder to make games. <laughs> it's a bit of Yankee swap. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I mean, as, as someone says, adventure is something horrible happening to someone far away. Um, <laughs> if, if far away is a little nearer, that just makes it a horror adventure, not a regular adventure. So we're getting close to the end of our time, but I, we did want to ask, um, what's it like working with Robin. I mean like which one of you is the brains of the outfit? Let's be honest. Well, I mean I mean uh I think that we have different lobes of our brains. Um Robin is definitely whichever lobe is the is the sort of in control uh good at engineering brain and I'm sort of the hey, what if there were Templars? Uh, crazy brain. Um and I think that Working with Robin is, is first of all, podcasting with him is a freaking delight. Uh, he's such a great uh, guy to just talk to. So just having an excuse to talk to him, you know, once a week is terrific. Even even if we didn't have a podcast, we might do it. Although, don't stop Patreoning, people. Um, <laughs> we wouldn't do it on the radio, that's for sure. Uh, but the sort of long-form tennis game that we've been playing where he designs Ezoterrorists and Fear Itself and lobs those over the net to me and I design Trail of Cthulhu and lob it back over the net to him and he designs Ashen Stars and lobs it back to me and then I design Knights Black Agents and lob it back to him and he does King in Yellow and now I'm like, ah, oh, what am I going to do to beat that? I mean, it's it's super great. I mean, way back in the day when I was doing uh, the original series Star Trek for uh, Last Unicorn Games and... I gave Robin some big part of the of the universe to to write. I think he got to write the Federation chapter and maybe the history huh. chapter. And I sent it off to him and sure enough, you know, four days before deadline or whatever, ping in my in- email, perfect text, literally perfect. I mean, nobody is perfect. Robin is perfect. So I like broke a sentence just because I could just to justify having done my job. <laughs> but ever since then, working with Robin has been just a, beautiful downhill glide in the sense of how easy and smooth everything is. Um, he's, you know, he obviously he's a great game designer. He looks at things, uh, 
in the sort of, you know, how does, how is this a story is, I guess, the question that he asked, which is not the question that I ask. I ask, how is this interesting? And maybe mm. that's the difference between him and me. It's not like Robin doesn't think of interesting. It's not like I don't think of story, but I think our first responses to something are just that little bit off. And that I think makes the creative partnership more powerful than if I was just, Oh yeah. Feng Shui too, but not as good. Uh, or, um, <laughs> Oh yeah. As a terrorist, but not as good. I think that the fact that I'm sort of have my own arrow in on a, on a game or a game setting, a potential game setting. I mean, that's part of what keeps the podcast interesting. And it's certainly, I think part of what keeps that, um, uh, that back and forth of, of gumshoe design interesting again. I mean, right now, the only thing I can think of to respond to King and yellow with is an MR James game using his same quick shock system. But I know that's just a placeholder. I've got to think of something really cool. Well, so speaking of which, what do you have in the hopper now? Uh, right now I've got uh, fulfillment for my Kickstarter for tour to Lovecraft, the destinations, which is the second volume of my tour to Lovecraft series. I'm working on a book, uh, of London in the 1630s for lamentations of the flame princess. Uh, that's going to be pretty great. Uh, and hopefully I will spend a little bit of time, maybe this year, uh, reviving the day after Ragnarok stuff. I owe all of my fans the guide to Memphis, uh, Tennessee. Um, we have a, a, a manuscript in from Ian Herrick that I have left unconscionably long, and I need to go and edit that for people who want to go inside the, the Great Serpent and look for uh, strange exotic parasites and capture them. Dungeon delving inside uh, Jormungandr. That's, that's what we got. Um, and then past that horizon... Who can say that I want to do this, um, uh, this MR James game. Uh, I've got another couple of possibilities. Uh, who can say, but, uh, again, if you're listening billionaires, this is your opportunity. It sounds like you've got a lot of free time for those, uh, for those billionaire contracts. So absolutely nothing but free time for billionaires. Wink, wink. Ken, do you know the exact date that vampire five E like actually hits shelves? Yeah. I don't know uh, when it hits game store shelves. I know it'll be at Gen Con. People can walk up to the White Wolf booth and pay money and buy Vampire. So if you are at Gen Con listening to this right now, you can go to the White Wolf booth. Yeah, you can go. And then I assume not that long after, it will be on your game store shelves. Ken, this is great. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, We really appreciate you coming on. No, thanks a lot, man. So I'm hoping that someday someone, like literally anyone, will have enough faith in me to sort of hand me an IP uh, and just go, you know, make it better and different and, like, I don't know, kill everyone in it if you really want to. Well, here's what you like, do. I trust you. Here's what you need to do is, is, like, pick the IP you want to write for, then write the total inverse of that IP. <laughs> <laughs> and then make sure that the guys who run or the gals who run the IP that you want to write about read it. <laughs> You'll be good. So all of my slash fiction, I should be peddling to all the people who writing my favorite media it worked for 50 shades of gray all right do you hear that ishan is it that pesky gatehouse bell again is it coming back to haunt us if it is then it's time to move on to the character creation forge but before we do that let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us we do love hearing from you you can tweet at shane at mundangerous that's m-u-n dangerous and you can tweet at ishan at evil sends carne that's malice minus meat and you can tweet at the show at tpt cast you can also email us at totalpartythrill at gmail.com and you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrill.com we're also on facebook and instagram at totalpartythrill 
I, I got a little screwed up there because because we changed Cause, our because I didn't say totalpartythrillcast.com. dot Yeah, the old the old I, website. I know you thought I, I screwed was like, up. What's going on? We got a new we got a new URL. Yeah, it's on our business cards. We got business cards <laughs> with our new URL on. Uh huh. All right. So this week in the character creation forge, we are building the Nosferatu. Uh, pick the Nosferatu because, you know, we want to build a vampire. Uh, but also, for anyone who doesn't know anything about, like, Vampire the Masquerade, it's the one clan where you're like, oh, yeah, that's a vampire. I know what that is. Mm-hmm. Like, what's a Toreador? I it's some kind it. of crawler, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> some sort of Spanish pastry. <laughs> Obviously. It's like it's like an empanada, <laughs> but it's got sweets in it. Yeah, and... Uh, the B R U J A H I think must be pronounced Bruja. Bruja, Bruja. However, everyone knows what a Nosferatu is. It's a vampire that is gross. It is a vampire that is blue. Wait. No, that's a Nosferatu. Nope, blue. that wasn't Salem's Lot. <laughs> <laughs> a sad vampire? Oh, uh, dear. Um, okay, so Look, in the I, world of darkness. <laughs> only thing I know about Salem is Hocus Pocus, okay? So if it's not uh, Bette Midler and <laughs> you started Sarah Jessica this, Parker and Kathy and Jimmy. Nice. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or if that's practical magic. Uh, it's definitely not practical magic. I think that one was Sandra Bullock, right? Yes. <laughs> Why do we know that? They're all the same. The witches of Eastwick. They're, What's the difference? Uh, that was, I mean, that was, that was a good one. Right? I, uh, Death Becomes Her I is don't. basically the same. <laughs> okay. What is in Nosferatu? <laughs> All right, so in Vampire the Masquerade, the Nosferatu are a clan who, because they are hideous, uh, specialize in obfuscation, which is both like um, disguising themselves with illusions, um, also stealth, and spying. They are information brokers, so they have ways of um, finding information. Sometimes that means uh, dealing with animals, speaking to animals and, and having their little animal spies investigate things. Sometimes it means just changing the way that they look. Mm-hmm. Also, like it's a theme in D and D for players to want to play vampire characters. Like uh, certainly, <laughs> certainly, there's the power gamer method of, hey, I'm gonna find a vampire and have them bite me, and then I will get like awesome vampire abilities. Yep. Uh, but still be me, right? right. I mean, obviously, me? yeah, yeah, like yeah, it's like that or a werewolf doesn't change me. <laughs> uh, but I remember in fourth edition D and D, actually, there was both a half vampire race the uh, Vriloka and a vampire class uh-huh so you could be any race but also a vampire you could be a half vampire vampire yes you could absolutely do that dope uh, I think they made the best vampires <laughs> funnily enough <laughs> of course yeah double vampire well it's, I mean it's only one and a half vampire 1.5 yeah, right yeah. it's like blade plus a vampire right exactly like if he was like yeah mom I'll be a vampire with you bite me mom <laughs> All right, what's the bill? But then Stephen Dorff wasn't no. like, Aw. <laughs> no more blade. I'm so I'm gonna be so happy when we're done with vampire, which but, is immediately after you this. Know, you know what's gonna happen is like it's gonna come on like USA at like two in the morning, <laughs> and, and I'm gonna be, watch the whole stupid yeah. Of course, thing. of course right. you are. Oh my god, yeah. I'm gonna. I'll, it's gonna be Blade Trinity though, and I'm gonna hate myself. <laughs> I will hate you too. Okay, okay. what's the build? <laughs> it is Undying Pact of the Chain Warlock Twelve Assassin Rogue Six. Necromancer Wizard 2. Okay. So, uh, Warlock 12, we're going to get three uses of fifth level spells. Uh, and um, from Undying, we'll get False Life, which is really great in the early game to get you some temp HP. But you can also reflavor that as feeding, of course. 
Uh, you get silence, which in Vampire the Masquerade, um, Nosferatu are able to make things very quiet around them so that, you know, you can murder people in peace. Mm-hmm. And feign death, of course, which any vampire can do just by not sending blood to their organs. Right. Um, undead will also have trouble attacking you, which is which is nice. Maybe it's uh, they've like ghouls and ghasts and whites have decided you know what you're higher on the food chain than we are yeah well it's just that your undead flesh doesn't taste so good oh right that's true you don't yeah. have the the like stench of life on you right yeah and at sixth level you'll get defy death which only works once per day but if you succeed on a death saving throw you gain some hp which of course wakes you up at level 10 you no longer have to eat drink Breathe and you age super slowly, which is about as close to immortal as you can get in D and D. Yeah, I mean, short of <laughs> like level twenty monk, <laughs> true, true polymorph into something that lives forever. Right. Um, so warlock gets invocations. Um, there's You'll a, get six of them. Yeah, handful of really good ones that make a lot of sense for Nosferatu. Uh, so. Grippa invocations. <laughs> it's a bag full of invocations. <laughs> So there's a devil sight, which lets you see through magical darkness. A mask of many faces, which will hide your hideous disfigurement. Beast speech lets you speak to those animals and ask them to do nice things for you. Now, Cloud of Flies. Uh-huh. I remember when we talked about this originally, we kind of criticized it because it is just going to kill your party. Yes. Because uh, it's an aura that does automatic damage. It doesn't differentiate between friend or foe. And so like one of your allies falls and now you're dealing death saving throw failures it is totally going to do that however you're a nosferatu you're gross not your problem uh your your allies should know to stay away from you because you're hideous why would they want to be anywhere near you exactly also it's really nice uh in it's so weird being like there's two five e's right in the new vampire game um there is a discipline of animalism which lets you uh control insect swarms and then have them like nest inside your body uh, which is super gross, and that's that's exactly how I'd flavor this. Is, uh, yeah, I got uh, I got bugs in me. Yeah, no, I, I I mean that's one of the things in the book is they're just like, well, I'm not using that flesh anyway, so <laughs> why don't you live here? Right. Uh, you'll get I think one with shadows is a nice choice. It's if you're in dim or dark light, you can become invisible, uh, which is really you know just an upgraded version of like looking like whomever you want. Right. Uh, and then you got some other choices, like Otherworldly Leap uh, lets you cast Jump at Will. It's great for those Chinese hopping vampires. Hey, good. Look at you. Look oh, at you with oh, your studies. I'm, I'm multicultural in that <laughs> they were included in Knights Black Agents. <laughs> I had never heard of them before that. It also mirrors the potency discipline that Nosferatu have access to in Vampire. Uh, it just means like a sudden burst of like strength or um, a physical ability. Uh, but Voice of the Chainmaster is good, too, because um, you can sort of put your spirit into your familiar. I think, what does Vampire call it? A famulus? Yeah. Which is just a, worse just a word funny for word for familiar. Yeah. <laughs> Later in the book, they also use the word familiar, so hey, don't get it go. twisted. Um, so then moving on, Assassin Rogue. Um, that gets you, of course, sneak attack as well as four expertises. You get cunning action, which means hide as a bonus action, which basically just means, whoop, I'm gone. Uh, you'll also get Assassinate, which is um, not only super flavorful for a vampire that, you know, uh, attacks from the shadows and always gets the jump on its prey, um, also makes a lot of sense for that potency domain that that you just mentioned for Nosferatu. Yeah, if you're ripping a throat open, that's an Assassinate. 
Uh, and then you're getting uncanny dodge, which is, you know, as a reaction, have the damage from an attack that's coming in um, that you can see. Uh, and this is this is any damage, right? Any kind of damage. This is like a fireball. Um, actually, like fireball. Actually, fireball would be the only thing you should, probably shouldn't use this for, right? But this would be like spells as well, uh, physical damage. Vampires are very resistant to most kinds of damage. Um, I would use this to simulate that, you know? Um, I have the damage because I'm a vampire, not because I'm a rogue dodging nimbly out of the way. Yeah, just never use it against radiant damage as a matter of roleplay. Right, fire, radiant, and what's the other one? Other uh, vampires. And piercing weapons to the heart. <laughs> and the teeth of vampires, which are the only things strong enough to cut vampire flesh. <laughs> there's a there's a Venus joke in here, but I'm too tired to make it. Or wait, is it a degree? What is it? Secret. Strong enough for a man. PH bounce for a vampire? Yeah, something like that. Strong like, enough. I, I strong enough up. for a vampire, but PH bounce for a woman? Get us out of here. What do we get from <laughs> Necromancer 2? Uh, you get a couple cantrips, one of which should be one of those cantrips from uh, Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide that lets you, on your single attack, do um, a bunch of extra damage. Because remember, you're uh, weighing all of your damage onto your uh, sneak attack uh, yeah. from Rogue. So, so probably, probably Booming Blade's the best one, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, so it's either Booming Blade or Green Flame Blade. But you probably don't want Green Flame Blade. It's, yeah, it's not super flavorful. I'll give you that. It's uh, it's scary fire. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you could replay it for, I don't know. Uh, and then at level two, you get Grim Harvest, which is when you um, reduce a creature to zero hit points using a spell of first level or higher, you regain hit points and if it's a necromancy spell uh, you regain even more hit points this of course is your feeding with things like vampiric touch for example but you know it, it can be pretty much any spell that that you reflavor so in terms of leveling order uh, i think i would start with probably how far do you go in warlock to begin with like maybe five levels of warlock and then jump into rogue yeah, I think that's a nice break point to get you third level spells. Right. And like, uh, what's that, three invocations? Yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe six level, go ahead and get to five death. Pick up Rogue One, or, well, hold on. Did we start Rogue One? I, well, what were you in before you became a vampire, I guess, is oh, the question. fair, you're right. Yeah. So either uh, one or two wizard, or like one rogue. Get into vampire pretty quickly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, then I would, so yeah, so I would take the six levels of whatever you started with as human then six levels of warlock then all of your rogue then finish out your warlock take wizard last unless it was how you became a vampire i may nestle wizard in earlier just so i can feed mm-hmm. but whatever you like maybe you're uh one of those vampires that just drinks uh, soul juice so shane who is your nosferatu so it's not really who is my Nosferatu. It's really who was my rogue before she became Nosferatu. Okay. Um, and of course, because the, the, the real story, the human story of any vampire is how they became a vampire, right? Um, so she was a regular, you know, assassin uh, for the Thieves Guild. That was her job. Um, but she got sold out. Like the Thieves Guild put her on a job that she wasn't capable of handling um, to get her out of the way. And it turned out that she was charged with assassinating a vampire. That's uh, difficult. It's not good. It's not good. 
Um, and so she was caught between a rock and a hard place, right? Like either you go forward with a job uh, and likely get killed by a vampire or you, you know, walk off the job and likely get killed by the thieves guild. So she moved forward, um, hunted down the vampire, uh, impressed the vampire with her, uh, with her skills, with her, uh, ability to gather intelligence about him about like all of the ways like that she was able to ply her craft and he saw an opportunity so he embraced her and she rose again as a vampire so she impressed him with her abilities and then he impressed her into vampirism yes impressed her with his teeth on her neck impressment <laughs> you now work for me uh how about your nosferatu you know, the question is not who is my Nosferatu. The question is who isn't my Nosferatu. Isn't because an NPC. <laughs> my Nosferatu makes uh, excellent use of Mask of Many Faces because my Nosferatu is everyone all at the same time because she is no one. You say, what's the most important thing about a vampire? How they got embraced? She doesn't know. Uh-huh. She's a vampire. She has these abilities. Does not know how it, got, it happened. She's a vampire with amnesia. Which means it's dangerous. The worst thing about knowing that you you must uh, have powerful enemies uh, would be not knowing what they look like, but knowing that they know what you look like. And so 100% of the time, she stays disguised as someone else, as anyone else, uh, in order to keep moving around, plying her trade just to make enough money to have a place to stay during the day and you know, feeding on and you know, whomever she comes across while she like takes on these jobs, it's possible, maybe even that she joins a uh, an adventuring party, and maybe they don't even know that she's a vampire uh, because they don't have a paladin in the, in the <laughs> <Yeah>. party. <laughs> Convenient. <laughs> um, and you know, you know, let's let's take this the whole way. She's trying to figure out a way. She doesn't like being a vampire. She doesn't remember why she uh, she did this in the first place. She can't uh, remember what all the terrible things that she must have done, but she knows that she's being pushed toward doing new terrible things, and she doesn't want to have that happen. Um, I'm going to guess she was actually a pretty bad person uh, before she lost her memory, and now this is a second chance. Um, and so now, hey, uh, maybe there is a paladin in the party. Maybe this paladin understands that she is a vampire and is like, you know what? I'm a devotion paladin, not a vengeance paladin. I can redeem you. <laughs> That's right. We're going to do this. We are going full redemption. Okay. Okay. All right. Yeah. There it is. Great. <laughs> All right. And then they fall in love. <laughs> oh, God. All right. Let's get out of here before it gets worse. Um, but before we do that, let's take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And if you do that, you will find a link to the Character Creation Forge Codex, where you can find the Nosferatu, as well as every other build that we have ever created for the Character Creation Forge in yeah. one handy spreadsheet. We're also giving away audiobooks. We have four, count them, four download codes from Sly Flourish's Fantastic Locations on Audible, and we are giving them away to our patrons so here's the deal on august 16th we will do two drawings the first drawing we will give away three download codes to three patrons uh we'll announce it on the air send you the code via email uh and then we are giving one download code away to new patrons only so if you pledge between now and august 16th you're entered into both drawings 
Yeah. Shane, I just want to point out, uh, if my paladin and my Nosferatu have a baby, uh huh, it will be Blade. Okay. Great. And then I'll switch to playing. Is it an Azamar Paladin? Because that's how you get Blade. Let's go. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Fallen Azamar Paladin. Yeah, I think you got to be an Azamar too. Oh, resistant from Radiant. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. You're right. Mm-hmm. I dig it. All right. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? Oh, we are continuing the anniversary celebration with our... Is it annual? Do we do this annually? Yeah, we do it annually at Christmas. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> well, we're doing a mailbag. Okay. So you, listeners, send us your questions at us email us uh rewind and find all the ways that you can get in contact with us <laughs> totalpartythrill at gmail.com is the easiest way to do it but you can also hit us on twitter at tpt cast uh or the individual twitters whatever and we will uh do what we did last year which is drink we actually don't usually drink while we're recording we will drink something probably terrible just for your amusement mm-hmm. and answer all your questions and in the character creation forge we are building the spell slugger well that's it for episode 157 of total party thrill i hope we lived up to our name but either way i'm shane and i'm ishan thanks for listening i'm lisa chen and i host behold her a monthly podcast that shines a spotlight on women in the world of tabletop games There are so many women to behold in this amazing hobby, and our experiences as female gamers are as diverse as we are as individuals. Through one-on-one interviews, audio essays, and panel discussions, all centered around a monthly theme, the guests on Beholder share their unique stories as players, game masters, designers, artists, organizers, and so much more. Their words are inspiring, uplifting, and informative. Check out Behold Her Podcast wherever podcasts are found or visit beholdherpodcast.com.